Welcome to our True Colors podcast. Today we have with us Larry Caulifat. Larry is a lecturer, an author, and a retired psychiatrist who's written many books about spirituality and wisdom. Larry is also one of the co-founders of a particular special interest group between the Real College of Psychiatrists. And a special interest group is a group of psychiatrists that meet together to discuss and to research a particular topic. The topic that they decided to investigate is spirituality. There is something quite unique in psychiatry that, unlike any other medical speciality, considers it worth studying what is spiritual and how it relates to that discipline. This is something that is not often discussed in podcasts, and I thought it would be a good chance to have an in-depth conversation with an expert on that matter. Well, hello, Larry. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. As you know, you. I recently, as you know, we have recently started this podcast with the aim of having conversations about mental health, but focusing on subjects that are not usually discussed in mainstream media, subjects like spirituality or questions about what can make our lives worth living. And you've written many books on these subjects, including a very interesting book on spirituality and psychology that I read a long time ago, and also several books about wisdom. Then hopefully we'll be able to have an interesting conversation away from what's mostly discussed in mainstream psychiatry. Then, if we have to start discussing all these complex subjects of spirituality and wisdom, one of the first problems that we face is of definition. Different people define mental health in many different ways. Uh, and the concept of what is mental health has changed a lot during my lifetime. Also, without the reason that now many people can with diagnosis of mental health. Uh, what are your views about it? How can you define mental health? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's a question I've been thinking about um, since the 1970s. <laughs> so I have a great deal to, to say, really. Um, uh, difficult to pin it down in a brief talk. But um, obviously, the first thing to say is mental health is a great deal more than simply the absence of symptoms or the absence of mental ill health. Um, I, I, I think that uh, uh, it's also more than feeling good, but well-being is a, is a kind of term that's used these days quite a lot, which does really kind of sum up uh, the sim simply, you know, what is mental health? You feel well, you feel optimistic, you feel um, good about yourself and good about the world and good about your neighbors and other people. Um, it's not to say that you don't suffer, but your suffering is meaningful. Uh, you grow through suffering. We grow through suffering very often. And um, I think uh, it also, I think that I think being healthy in, in terms of mental health uh, for me, there's a spiritual dimension also, uh, and that's that's a sense of unity, really, of feeling connected in a seamless uh, and comfortable way with everything, with uh, with every other person, not only living people, but 
people who have lived in the past and people who are going to come in the future. Uh, dis despite differences, we feel connected to them. We, despite differences of age, gender, race, language, whatever, we feel, and in in a spiritually healthy way, we we feel connected to to everybody. We feel also connected, deeply connected to nature, to the planet, to the universe, uh, and and perhaps also to um, some kind of cosmic whole or even a divine being uh, and so that uh, you might call it a holy spirit really so that through this holy spirit we feel connected in some way to everyone to everything um, and that's part and in, in my view uh, ultimately of mental health um, it, and and when that happens when you do have this sense of connectivity uh, what comes almost automatically with it as part of your mental health is an adherence to what you might call spiritual values or certainly um, uh, you might want to prefer to call them uh, uh, humanitarian values like honesty and kindness and humility and patience and tolerance and courage and gratitude and forgiveness joy, frugality, and uh, wisdom and love and, and compassion. These, these are the base. If you live if your life according to those values, you will be content, you will feel well, you will be blessed with a sense of well-being, and you will be a blessing, a help uh, to other people. Hmm. That's quite an Eastern sort of spirituality. But uh, as far as I understand, it is trying to get rid of our sense of ego, which is what isolates us, and try to be connected with a bigger whole, which I think is what some people taking psychedelic drugs try to achieve, that sense of dissolution of the ego and to be dissolved to something, something much bigger. Uh, because this is a, a very valid concept of spirituality and a concept that I don't think many people would accept. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine who's also a psychiatrist. And he told me that he often asks his patients about whether they have a spiritual belief. And some of his patients feel insulted about that because I think they they assume he's asking them about whether they, whether they follow an organized religion. And some people may feel a bit suspicious about having that question. But that's different from that type of holy spirituality. You seem to be defining spirituality as a sense of unity that goes beyond the strict boundaries of our ego. Would that be correct? Absolutely, yes. Um, the, the, the question about religion and spirituality and how they relate and interact is an interesting one, and it's one which is a stumbling block for some people, but I don't see it as, as a problem um, because uh, the spiritual level is deeper than... Um, than the more superficial uh, institutions of religions. And uh, I think if you look at the, what you might call the mystical uh, part or components or, or um, streams of world religions, they all point in the same way to this, um, this spiritual reality or truth. Uh, as you say, that, 
our egos get in the way. Our egos are, our, are formed by our attachments to things, attachments to ideas. I think a belief is a form of attachment in a way. So, um, so to make progress on this one's spiritual journey through life, it, it involves releasing uh, attachments. It doesn't mean giving up things it, exactly. It means giving up attachment to things. So you may, uh, in my case, you would I would say I was raised in a Christian tradition, and I remain uh, attached to the Christian faith but not exclusively in the sense it's not the attachment is not so rigid that I can't accept the value um, uh, and truth and uh, within other uh, world traditions. In fact, I've spent a lot of my life studying other world faiths and learning from not just the scriptures, but also the, uh, the people, the, the uh, people who, um, who follow those faiths? I'm thinking particularly of a time in my life when I took some teaching from some Tibetan Buddhist monks, uh, men who had escaped from uh, Tibet when it was invaded by uh, China, and they went to live in the West, and they brought their their sacred teachings with them. And those teachings have been, uh, to some extent, Westernized, as you know, uh, um, John Kabat-Zinn was one of the pioneers to adapt uh, uh, Buddhist-type meditation and mindfulness uh, to treating people with long-term uh, and otherwise um, intractable psychosomatic conditions, psychosomatic yeah. pain, and so on. So these 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 Eastern traditions have and Eastern faith have filtered into the West um, little by little. Yeah, uh, if our listeners want to explore the history of what is said about Tibet, there is a well-known film called Seven Years in Tibet that explores that that type of history at that time. But what you're mentioning about that type of spirituality as connection with something that is bigger than us is not just specific of Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism. It's quite common in all Eastern religions because I recently read again the Bhagavad Gita and the Incisal Not in that, and I'm reading again now the Tao Te Ching, and that seems to be the, the, the main core idea that sense of dissolving, that sense of ego and the attachment with things, which is a, a very interesting concept. And I think it's a concept that can be quite understood in our society. I think one of the problems that we have is that we live in a society very attached to things. And very attached to very superficial things. And I think a good part of the unhappiness that we are facing now is from to say that epidemic of unhappiness that is being medicalized as, as being mental health. In good part is because of the lack of meaning and that excessive attachments to things that are not important. I guess it's a difficult concept to explain quickly here in a podcast, but it's something that I've noticed. So there is a recent book that talks about uh, an epidemic of despair, most in the United States, and it's trying to focus on people whose life don't have meaning, and as a result of that, they end up resorting to drugs, to alcohol, and eventually to suicide. Then well, I, think, I think we can argue that that meaningless is a consequence of 
our Western way of living, which is very focused on having things, on being very angry we don't have them, and envying people who have them, and ignores other ways of, of living a life. But it's, it's a complicated subject because it's very difficult to know what to do. But the thing to aim at is that there is something that we could call certain unhappiness. And that shall unhappiness goes by a way of living that has moved away from that spirituality that you, did, you defined and has very alienated types of lives that are very unnatural. And those more unnatural lives tend to lead to chronic unhappiness. Well, I've made myself clear because it's quite a, con a complicated concept. Well, I, 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 you've opened up a big, big uh, area, and and it's it's partly to respond to that that I wrote this book, uh, the big book of wisdom, um, it, which has three parts. One is um, what is wisdom, then it, then why do we need it, which addresses the questions you've been raising, and then how to get how to get it. So there's three parts to this book. So. You've talked about an epidemic of despair, but I think the epidemic is um, not only of despair, but as you've indicated, addictions. I'm not only addictions to the more obvious alcohol, uh, drugs, uh, gambling, but also um, shopping, maybe eating. Sex addiction is common. Uh, gaming, I believe, is now and 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 just social addiction to sort of living through social media and i think you're quite right that it's a secular materialist western culture that is um a, a, an important causative uh, factor uh and i think there's so many uh, things that particularly i would imagine for younger people um that kind of encourages this way of being and Part of it is that we have, for a very long time now, relied on the scientific method of inquiry and not so much on the contemplative, uh, intuitive method of inquiry. In other words, we've gone for science and facts and not so much for, for wisdom uh, and, and uh, how to be with each other. Um, I think there must become a turning point. I've just got a quote here from uh, Extinction Rebellion, uh, their literature. We are facing an unprecedented global emergency. Life on Earth is in crisis. Scientists agree we have entered a period of abrupt climate breakdown and we are in the midst of a mass extinction of our own making. That is enough to give anybody a, a, a kind of pause and, and a kind of... Uh, challenge to their hopefulness, to their optimistic way of life. And um, I read another astonishing uh, statistic. Um, recently, it was in the Daily Telegraph, that I think it was 53% of uh, teenagers uh, think that or believe that the world will come to an end within their lifetime. That's an astonishing number I mean, it really, it really does mean that 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 some radical rethink 
is required, some radical new paradigm no, for understanding not just um, who and what we are, but why we are here. Well, this type of new paradigms tend to come to fruition when there is a big tension in society that cannot be resolved unless there is a big change. And I think I was aiming a bit at that. Uh, I mean, I, we could try to give an example to our listeners of, of what I mean. I was trying to think like patients of mine that I used to have, I used to have many young patients with lots of problems with that happiness. That to, to try to focus in one person, let's imagine a young woman who's maybe 20 years old, was raised by a single parent, left education far too early, became pregnant, maybe she, she was 16, already has two or three children, works dead-end jobs, and then when she gets home, the only thing that gives her some type of meaning is going to social media, go to an app, and keep scrolling and seeing people showing their wealth and showing how happy they appear to be. And then she sees them, she tries to imagine that she's one of them, and that sort of gives her some type of minimal satisfaction that in the long term gives us a sense of even more emptiness. Then I can think that if that person develops a low mood, as it would be to be expected, would go to a GP, she would end up with an antidepressant. And if she's lucky, maybe she would have, after three or four months of waiting, six sessions of CBT, or someone would tell her to look at things in a more positive way. That wouldn't be a solution. The problem is structural in a way. I don't think so. What would you think about that? As, yeah, I, I, I think you've highlighted, um, I mean, even getting to see your GP, it happens that I was had to go and see mine recently about something, and I spoke to him, and he told me that he was now working 14 to 16 hours a day and coming in on his day off and at weekends to catch up. You know, the GPs are under enormous pressure, and part of it is this general malaise, if you like, I think, this general uh, 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 kind of, um, well, unhappiness or dissatisfaction with um, with life uh, and this um, false notion that uh, someone, yeah, people tend to blame, you know, the government is at fault, someone else is at fault, it's not. Uh, uh, and and someone else has to do something to sort this out. But actually, people, are, if we're going to find solutions, they need to look within uh, to find that part of ourselves, our souls, you might call it, that part of our our mental uh, faculties, which is able to communicate with... Um, with the universe, if you like, with the cosmic whole, um, I think, just very put it very briefly, medicine has got a bit uh, stuck on this technological approach. You talked about, you know, a young woman goes to the GP saying she's unhappy and she gets a prescription for antidepressants, and that's and maybe something else, a little bit of talking treatment, but that that is not that is antidepressants don't heal anybody. They just suppress symptoms, and, and healing is about the word healing comes 
from the same root language as the word for whole and wholeness and indeed holistic. So healing people is actually making them whole. It's about making you whole in body and mind and spirit. And people are not trained in medicine and even in psychiatry to heal. They are trained to fix, uh, uh, diagnose and fix as best they can. And of course, you know, that, that's an incomplete approach. Uh, and we have to, hit, to some extent, start with ourselves, heal ourselves, make ourselves whole before we can properly help and heal others. Mm -hmm. Well, you can argue that you cannot really fix a type of meaningless that is part of a way of, a way of living that people find it very difficult to escape from. But let's assume that that young woman comes talk to us and asks us, what can I do then? To be a bit happier. But would you advise her to at least oh, well, start I, having I, more I, spiritual life? I've set a I've set up a website called the Worldwide Wave of Wisdom www.wwww.net Worldwide Wave of Wisdom, which gives some pointers in that regard. So the suggestion is, and you can't just say, you know, hand it out like a prescription. You have to engage with the person so that they will come to trust that you will give them meaningful advice. But but putting it briefly, my recommendation is that person that a person takes takes stock of their uh, situation uh, in terms of uh, what I call uh, wisdom practices and start undertaking wisdom practices or developing those that they already undertake. And this in the context of what I call a personal development plan. Uh, uh, or, or you could call it a, a spiritual uh, development plan, if you like. So the idea is that people are all on uh, some kind of journey towards um, what you might call maturity, personal, psychological, spiritual maturity, and that, that we can help ourselves doing it. Um, and there are a number of different types of uh, spiritual practice or, or wisdom exercise that helps and some will suit some people and some will suit others and there's a range of them and the the the, the central one for me and certainly in my life is is uh, meditation or mindfulness or you might call it silent prayer uh which i undertake on a daily basis um usually for 30 minutes as it happens but even a, a five minutes uh, of sitting quietly with yourself on a daily basis is helpful um, and it's, you know, there's research on this and research on how beneficial it can be for children too, in schools, age children, um, doing five minutes of what they what might call stilling rather than meditation as such. But anyway, spending time uh, in silence and stillness uh, and often also, well, maybe in a group, but also in solitude. And there are a number of other um, uh Practices or that I include in in this uh, list: uh, keeping physically healthy uh, with diet and exercise, uh, 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 social engagement with others uh, that that gives you a sense of purpose and belonging. You know, perhaps in a knitting circle, for instance, or a book, or uh, supporting a, a, a sports team, uh, or being in part of a sporting team. Um, 
marriage and family life. This is there's, there's a kind of so uh, spiritual element to uh, a calling in to a successful marriage is marriages and and parenthood, uh, and I think that's also something that's kind of slipped a bit in our Western culture. People take each other more for granted, don't spend as much time with each other's families and so on as they used to, caught up in the the busy world that they have to uh, engage with to earn the money to pay the mortgage or whatever it is, you know. Um, so so taking, your, taking stock of your family life and how much time you spend engaged um, in a loving uh, and kind, uh, uh, um, generous way with your family. Being generous is a is a is a is a uh, part of us. One one opens up spiritually when one is generous. So giving, uh, giving your time, being of service, uh, random acts of kindness, and so on. There things there's things that people find. Uh, boost their sense of worth, their self-worth, uh, volunteering, and so on. These are all um, engaging with your community, societies, and maybe uh, particularly beneficial in this regard it is religious activity, uh, worship, religious music, um, reading scripture, and so on, but also reading poetry, reading philosophy, reading science, learning, improving yourself one way or another, um, learning to play an instrument. Um, I took up playing the classical guitar when I was 65. You know, it's it's quite difficult, but it's it's very rewarding to do that. And it feels as if, uh, you know, it's part of my personal growth uh, activities. So there is, there, you know, Keeping a journal, that's another good thing that people can do. Writing down how you, th what happened, not just only what happens to you and what you do, but how you feel about it. So getting in touch with your own inner life, your own thoughts, feelings, ideas, and so on. Using, taking yourself on as a project, really. You know, becoming somebody who thinks, you know, I am what I am, but I, what am I becoming? Who am I and what am I? What, Am I becoming, and what do I want to become as a person? Uh, do I want to become of use to others? Most people do, deep down, everybody perhaps, almost everybody. And people who are unhappy are often unhappy because they they haven't found a way to be useful to others or they feel rejected by others. And I, and I think that's, um, you know, that's sad because, um, because there is so much good in people. I completely agree. And I could see that if that young woman that I uh, more or less described at the beginning decides to enter into a relationship that is fulfilling and uh, develops some spirituality and develops some type of hobbies and activities that they don't imply just being in social media, being envious of other people, and but just connecting with people in her own community and doing things that connect her with other people. She would be less unhappy. Then it would work. And I can see that. That's feasible. And it's interesting because uh, some time ago I started attending um, a, a church that is a, a very inclusive Church of England church. And that attracts a lot of young people who are starting to discover 
important of spirituality for the first time in their lives. And that, I think, is very useful for all of them. And I think it's something that needs to be explored further. But I'm just thinking about something else. There is a big debate when debating this type of problem between two schools of thought. There is a school of thought that says that the first thing that we need to do is to work on ourselves to improve our possible unhappiness, which would be the wisdom approach. Or if you want to find someone famous that says that would be like the Jordan Peterson approach, that first you have to work in yourself. And then you have the other point of view that says, oh no, that's rubbish. The problems are external. You need to concentrate on changing the world first, which would be the, the Zizek's approach, who completely hated the wisdom. I don't think that these two approaches are necessarily compatible. And I would think that the first thing that all of us can do is to start working on ourselves. But I don't think about it. Well, that's the easiest, isn't it, to start with yourself? I mean, trying to change the world seems to me to be a bit of a tall, tall order from indeed, and on their own. But, uh, but I think what I'm, what what those Tibetan monks taught me, you know, many many years ago now, um, as well as teaching me how to meditate, um, they taught me that even if in a small way you change yourself, you are changing the world. You know, it 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 has a a, a kind of knock-on effect, a kind of, you know, we're all so seamlessly interconnected, so intimately interconnected, that every every time you find a way to be, let's say, less angry when something upsets you, or just be with your anger until it subsides, and so that you, as it were, your motor's still running, but you put the clutch in, as it were. So you, your emotions are still going, but you don't act on them. And you just learn how to pause. And meditation is very good at helping people develop that ability of pausing and observing what's going on before responding and acting. So something upsets you. Uh, you pause. You recognize, I am angry. That immediately then takes away some of the energy from the anger and that moment you know when you're calm again you can then find the right thing to say or the right thing to do or the right thing maybe it is to keep silent and do nothing but you know this is wisdom this is where wisdom comes from you learn how to behave one of the definitions that i have used in my book for wisdom which i've developed is Wisdom is a kind of knowledge. It's kind of what I call a sacred knowledge. It's different from the knowledge of science, which is the knowledge of facts. But it acknowledges the wisdom of how to be and behave for the best, for all concerned in many different situations. So knowledge, wisdom, the knowledge of how to be and behave for the best, for all concerned in many different situations. So, and it's, an, it's not... Uh, it's not like the facts of science that bec that become established and there they are and you can go and look them up. No, wisdom isn't like that. Wisdom is intuitive in the moment. And what is a, a wise action or a wise thing to say at this moment in time for this person may be completely different for a different person at a different uh, a different uh, point in time. So it's in, it's an intuitive thing that doesn't have a kind of it's not fixed. But it is, and it, as it were, comes to you th uh, um, th 
through this this sense of being connected uh, with your ego on one side so you're not just looking out for your ego and for your your little self your you're kind of acting through your your greater self or your true self or your spiritual self or you know mm-hmm. from your from your your behavior your actions your thoughts your words they come mm-hmm. from deep within and when this happens um the the chinese i think it is the chinese term wu wei wu wei is is something that they is action comes out of inaction so you are sitting or being quiet and patient and then suddenly you you've done something you've said something and you kind of didn't know you were going to do it or say it but it turns out it was the right thing to say or the right thing to do at the exact moment that just you know kind of worked in whatever the situation was to bring about a better outcome that is interesting it links a bit with that Jungian concept of synchronicity that things happen when they yeah. have to happen in yeah. a way that connects different things from the conscious and the unconscious. That's interesting. That's a big... And we, we are moving back to that connectedness that we discussed at the beginning. That's good. I think we've, we've done a big talk about it's spirituality. Another, another, another of my favorite quotes also in my uh, book about wisdom is um, from Thomas Merton, who was a a Christian uh, uh, monk and writer, a spiritual writer um, who lived in the last century, he said at one point, we are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And what mm-hmm. we have to cover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are. So we are already one. What we have to be is what we are. And I, I think that's very profound when you kind of, not just understand what he's saying, but live that life, recognize that. Um, here's the Dalai Lama also. Uh, I try to promote human compassion based on a sense that all human beings are one. This way of thinking is of immense benefit to me. When I meet someone with two eyes, one nose and so forth, I recognize them as physically, mentally, and emotionally the same as me. I feel they are my sister or brother. Hmm. That's that's very interesting. I'm just thinking in going back to the beginning of our conversation in what is mental health and that why the conversation that we had about why people are unhappy. Uh, I can see that there is a way to understand that unhappiness that is quite holistic, quite global, when looking at the spiritual dimension of our lives. And then we have that more restrictive medical model. I was just remembering a previous conversation that we had, you and me, that made me think about something important. Both of us are psychiatrists. Both of us have worked in the NHS following a more medical model. And both of us have left that model for some reason. I left the NHS for private practice, and I think you also left the NHS some time ago. I just wonder whether there is a big problem in how the psychiatric services are organized through the NHS in this country, that they favor a very results-orientated, quick medical model that doesn't take into consideration spiritual dimensions, and is very narrow in its focus. What do you think? Well, as you know, I was one of the uh, six people who founded in the late 1990s the Spirituality and Psychiatry Special Interest Group as part of the Royal College. 
And I'm pleased to say that it's going strong and has three and a half thousand psychiatrist members these days and, and continues to be an influence. Um, it's not, um, it's not, uh, the, yet the case that, uh, uh, that the spiritual element, a spiritual dimension of healthcare is uh, routinely, uh, considered and incorporated in, in practice, psychiatric practice, but individuals, there are many individuals, not only psychiatrists, but other mental health, uh, care practitioners and nursing and social work and elsewhere. Um, and also in other professions, I mean, I'm part of the international, uh, association for the study of spirituality uh, and, uh, regularly read its journal, um, the, um, uh, journey for the study of spirituality. And so there are teachers, um, uh, people from all works of life, all, all kind of, uh, um, professions who are taking an, a growing interest in the spiritual dimension and how vital it is at central to human well-being. Uh, and I just think that it's a wave that's growing. It's not, it hasn't, you know, reached its pinnacle and peak yet, and it hasn't taken over and it hasn't, uh, but it's growing and that's a good thing. And it may be that it'll accelerate in its growth. Um, and I think people have realized that what, what their approach to medicine and to psychiatry currently is essentially unsustainable. The demand is out, you know, vastly outstripping people's ability to main, maintain even, you know, uh, with that waiting list growing and so on, and you can't can't keep up. Now, I have another saying that I like, which is that um, that compassion without wisdom leads to exhaustion. In other words, you try individually and collectively, we try and and uh, service the need, but um, unless we look after ourselves, we have the wisdom to to pause and think it through and take relief and get proper rest when we need it and so on and recharge our own um, physical, mental and spiritual batteries, then you're going to run out of steam and burnout will happen and so on at the individual level. And also the services will crumble. They will, they will falter. Yeah. And I mean, so uh, I've seen that you made me think exactly that problem of compassion without wisdom is something that I saw in NHS in some teams that I was working with very compassionate people that were completely overworked and they all burnt out because the, the basis of what they were doing was not solid enough. They didn't have a, a way to understand what they were doing inspired by that wisdom. I think the purely medical model was failing them in the way that it was not leading anywhere, which is a very complex thing. And I don't think we can discuss it in the podcast with, with all the time that it deserves. Because I think it, it hits on... No, but I think just, just raising the topic is important. Sure. Yeah, because I, I certainly had conversations with very caring nurses who were completely burnt out. And it's because the, the problem was another different one. And maybe we need to focus more on prevention. And if you go back to that example of that woman, there are lots of things that could make that life happier that is not giving tablets or giving formal CBT. There are many other things that 
the whole of the society can participate and we can we can have like volunteers trying to help people to become more connected. We can have programs that allows people to do more social activities. There are lots of things that can be done that are not purely medical. But I'm sure that they're going to be explored. I can I agree with you. I can sense a change in the years that I've been a psychiatrist in this country towards something more relational. Then the, the, I agree that there is like a current in psychiatry that tries to move away from the more strict medical model and tries to look at other things, which is extremely good. Hopefully that will work. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think it's good to be optimistic in a way. Then have you completely given up psychiatry? Do you still work? Uh, do I still work? Oh no, I I retired from the NHS in 2007. I'm in my mid 70s now, <laughs> so I haven't. Uh, I did go on a little bit of, with private practice for a, a while, mostly doing um, medical legal reporting. But no, I've been concentrating on um, my personal spiritual development. You could say uh, uh, I got married after I retired uh, for the f for the first time in my 60s. Uh, I've, um, I've been writing all these books. I've written two novels as well as um, the books that people can find on wisdom and happiness and spirituality that um, that you can find on my website, which um, if you don't mind me uh, mentioning, it's um, www.ldc52.co.uk. Um, so yeah, I've written lots of books and uh, I've been um, playing golf. That's my part of my spiritual practice is, uh, is the, game, the game of golf, which, uh, which keeps me healthy and um, gives me a social the, uh, element of social activity and friendships. And, um, and also I would say in a sort of Zen-like way, the actual hitting of the ball, playing the shot um, has a cut, uh, spiritual element to it too. Oh, um, I'm just thinking something else now. Um, you know, this is a podcast and people cannot ask us questions because they will just hear the recording. I'm trying to imagine someone listening to us, what they would ask us a question. One thing that the psychiatrist would ask, what would they do to learn more? Apart from reading your books, that obviously they can do that. Is there any other thing that they can read? Any other? Oh, Tolo. I was thinking like McGilchrist. Well, uh, well, if you've got the time, uh, Ian McGilchrist's uh, ma masterly books, The Master and His Emissary is the first one, and then more recently published, I think last year, The Matter with Things, which is a very mm -hmm. extraordinary and wonderful two-volume book, um, which um, develops his uh, ideas uh, about the two, halves, two hemispheres of the human brain and how they work uh, differently, um, and comp, uh, uh, but, uh, and how in our culture we, um, em uh, uh, overemphasize the left at the expense of the, of the right, the left, which is, um, hemisphere, which is a more sort of, uh, has a dualistic, uh, you know, approach uh, working like a, a serial processor of information, cause and effect, uh, either all kind of thinking right and wrong us and them good and bad and the uh, the left side which is the more you could almost say spiritual side or human side 
which is which um, which is a holistic uh, uh, or a unitary um, uh, parallel processor of information. So it sees everything at once in a sense in context uh, and as whole. And so I mean I won't go on to say any much more about that. But that I mean I think people are very well advised to to, to at least find some sort of um, summary of uh, McGilchrist's work, which I have actually summarized it uh, in part mm -hmm. in my book too. Um, I think that's very important a uh, read. Um, what else will I would I think about? I'm just looking at my own, you know, bookshelves, which are, of course are, are packed with great uh, material. But one of the things that I also think is would be very useful, well, two books I could recommend. One is um, The Spirit of the Child, which is research work from David Hay uh, mm -hmm. and his research assistant, uh, Rebecca and I, uh, which, which shows how we all in young, in our childhood, have a kind of spiritual sensibility or awareness and how it tends to get submerged or suppressed when we go to school and we encounter science and we encounter the materialistic secular world view that prevails in our culture so that's one book the spirit of the child and another book that's very useful i think is um uh, out of the darkness steve taylor's book on people who grow through have grown through um uh adversity so you know they go through some unpleasantness a diagnosis of cancer with treatment or something of that kind or uh, some other thing and they find that uh, their worldview changes they 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 become much less egocentric in their worldview they become more uh, altruistic and compassionate and kind and and uh, and uh, take on those uh, values that that I was referring to earlier about honesty and kindness humility patience gratitude and forgiveness gratitude is is um it is a very good sign of mental health, I think. If you feel grateful for, you know, every breath you take, every day you live. And forgiveness, if you can forgive people, if you find it in your heart to forgive people, you actually feel so much better when you forgive people who've hurt, hurt you or who you think will hurt you. It's really, you know, very, very important. And another, another um, value system uh, uh, that I mentioned earlier that i would like to repeat about is frugality in our in our culture our our um climate uh changing global warming culture you know it's partly driven by the excess that people uh engage in indulge in the excess of uh using stuff that they don't essentially need but uh and and distinguishing for yourself what you need and what you want which are quite different things and going for the you know the less lesser option the frugal option i don't mean you know painfully starving yourself or whatever but i just mean being kind being careful and being kind to the planet and there are like three concepts that you just mentioned if i remember well one is that frugality that i think we could conceptualize it as trying to have a life less marked by having things yeah acquiring things and less acquisitive life which is very interesting yeah. 
and it's a very interesting subject, that concept of discovering a spiritual dimension following an emotional upheaval, a sense of loss or a sense of breakdown, which is quite common. Many people get to spirituality after that. And I think this is one of the best ways to a personal tragedy, to, to discover the spiritual dimension. And the third is try to discover that sense of wonder that we had as children and we lost as adults. Because we, we discussed that some time ago, that as a child, uh, I have more of a spiritual dimension in my life. I lost it as an adult and I'm regaining it now. And I think the word defining it is a sense of being disenchanted, being enchanted with something as a child and losing that sense of enchantment later on in life. And that is the importance to recover it, to be enchanted again with little things. As to where we were children, I was a child I was enchanted by grass and insects jumping and birds flying. And I was completely fascinated by everything. And I completely lost that sense. And now maybe we're starting to recover it. Well, that's great. I mean, I think that's, that's, that is the journey. I mean, so many, um, there's so much great literature tells this same story about, you know, paradise lost and paradise regained. Uh, I think we have to go through that. I think that, I mean, I've written uh, again in some of my books, um, including the big book of wisdom about this journey through stages of personal development. And it does seem as if, um, you do have to, as it were, lose your innocence and engage with the world and establish yourself, get your, you know, in a family relationship, perhaps in a job and a profession, whatever. And it does tend to, uh, you do tend to lose your, you may have been a, a religious adherent and you lost your faith or you lose your, your enthusiasm. Um, and then there is this stage, uh, Richard Raw in his book, Falling Upward talks about how few people even know about and, and, and embark on what he calls the second stage of their lives, which is the, is this re enchantment, re-spiritualization that, uh, that, uh, is, is so important. Um, and, and will be more important as, as the world's, uh, as humanity, um, gets itself in even more of a pickle. Um, yeah. yes, I agree. This is a very interesting book falling upwards that we read some time ago. And I quite recommend to everybody. Uh, regarding Bud Gilchrist, I can also say that he has a website. And in the website, there are links to lots of YouTube videos where he himself explains his philosophy like in a in a shorter format. If our listeners don't feel like reading his two volumes of the matter of things, they can watch some of his YouTube videos that summarizes things in a more like easy way. But I'm sure it's, it's going to be a good introduction. Then we've, we've talked about a lot of things. We're giving advice. We sorted out a life, that young woman, without meaning her life. We recommended plenty of books. It's quite a lot to do in less than one hour. Yeah. Great pleasure talking to you. Hopefully more listeners will find it useful. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Larry. God bless.